Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. My guest is Steve Panifer, a uh, director at Consult Hyperion. Website is chyp.com. Steve, how are you? Very good. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for coming. So, yeah, tell me about uh, Consult Hyperion. It's been around for a long time. Tell me about the company. Yeah, so we're a boutique consulting firm, uh, or technology consulting firm, another way of putting it. And uh, we're about 45 people, so quite small, but uh, but perfectly formed, obviously. And uh, over the last 30 years, we've been uh, looking at innovations and developments in, in payments and identity in particular. Uh, and our background is, uh, I guess, uh, security technologies, transactional technologies, things like smart cards, mobile phones, things that you put in the consumer's hand that enable them to transact securely. And um, mm. that's kind of our, I guess, our, our core expertise. But then how do you make that work for, for consumers today or tomorrow? And uh, and so we've, we've, we've managed to kind of been quite successful in, in following the, the, the development evolution in, in that whole kind of space over, over an extended period of time. And what that means is, of course, we have, uh, um, you know, we have some, we're battle hardened, um, but also we have uh, uh, a lot of a lot of experience and uh, knowledge to bring. So um, that, that, that's, and we, we would we would call ourselves support leaders as well. I think we, we, we you know, whilst we've been around for 30 years, uh, we, we managed to kind of keep ourselves fresh in terms of keeping up to speed with with what's going on. Um, mm. We have lots of interesting customers which help, and we have uh, a little prototyping uh, lab as well. So um, we're always playing around with this stuff, right? What's the main premise of Consult Hyperion? What do you guys do? Yeah, so our view, and I think this is, I think you'd agree with this, is that when you look at any transaction that someone does digitally, uh, so you know, buying something, accessing a government service, and I'm thinking particularly about transactions that individuals, that consumers do, so you know, accessing a government service, I don't know, doing uh, something health-related, whatever it might be, there are two key enablers that make those transactions possible. The first thing is, obviously, you need to be able to pay quite often, particularly, obviously, in retail, that's important. And um, uh, in uh, actually, the Internet wasn't, you know, a lot of the payments that we have today were designed before the Internet. So card payments were designed before the Internet. So the, the way that they've existed on the Internet has, has often been a bit sub, uh, sort of suboptimal. So, so we've been involved with uh, lots of the main players in the payment space, uh, card networks, banks, those kinds of organizations making, looking for ways to make payments work better. Um, the other area, the other, the other kind of key enabler that you need 
for any kind of transaction is you need, need to know who you're dealing with, right? You need to know uh, if it's, a, if it's say, say you're accessing a government service and that government service is paying out benefits, for example, um, or paying you some money, then the government needs to know that they're paying the right person. So identity mm. is, is a very important part of, of all transactions as well. And, and identity can, can operate at different levels, right? You can have some services where actually you don't really care that much about the precise sort of legal identity of the individual, uh, in which case, you know, you're, you're just kind of interested in maybe them asserting who they are. Uh, but there are other, uh, other, other types of service, government, health, banking, you know, regulated services where you actually have to know to quite a strong level who, who the individual is legally, who the individual is. And so, so we're involved in, in, in kind of innovating in that space as well. So, hmm. I mean, you would think that have it by virtue of having an account that uh, you could verify, you know, who someone says they are, but what are the factors that confound that? Why is extra verification needed? Or what? Yeah, you've put your finger right on the problem right there. So I have an account with, uh, you know, my bank. I have an account with every retailer that I transact with. I have an account maybe with the government. I have an account with my health provider. And all of those accounts currently uh, will be secured often with passwords. Um, that creates a lot of friction for me as a customer. It creates a lot of issues for me as well. So let's suppose I have <clears throat> an account with a um, uh, an online email provider for my email. And then I have an account with, um, uh, I don't know, health provider, say. And because I'm just, you know, I'm not able to manage lots of passwords, I use the same password in both, right? Or I use the, the email account as the mechanism of resetting the password in the health provider. Right. Then you can see there's all sorts of problems that can arise there where um, a, a, a compromise in, in, in the weak system actually creates a problem in the strong system because it doesn't matter how good the, the health provider is at managing their, their password vault, for example, the fact that I'm, I'm, my, my password is compromisable elsewhere creates a problem across the whole system. And there's this whole, whole issue at the moment of fragmentation. Basically, I have my, my personal data is stored in lots of different places. You know, uh, one of the things that we're all experiencing at the moment is um, things like um, spam email. Uh, this, 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 this arises as a result of me having created accounts in various, with various organizations, retailers, whoever, having maybe opted in or, or accidentally not opted out of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of my, my data being used by those organizations. That data then gets sold on, uh, associated with my email address, for example. And then there's this big mess of stuff that's kind of completely out of control. So my privacy is at risk. Uh, my security online is at risk. I mean, I, I, maybe it sounds like I'm scaremongering, but I, I think there is a genuine problem here for individuals in that they they really don't know. They they really kind of operate in a in, a, in an environment where there's a lack of control and a lack of transparency and visibility about what's actually going on, which creates uncertainty and ultimately it means that that valuable services find it more difficult to grow. So, what are some of the things that you guys have done to uh, you know, help facilitate identifying that a uh... A payment's coming from the right account. You know, maybe give me a few examples. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's a long way to go. I, I can assure you of that. So there have been um, a, several initiatives in the industry. Now, I can point to some examples, actually, of some success stories. Uh, these, are, these are not necessarily things that we've been directly involved with, but my, my particular role, so I'm a director of Consipium, but I have a particular interest in digital identity, which is which kind of why I've taken the conversation in this direction a little bit. Uh, and in that role as a, as a subject matter expert around digital identity, I'm talking to um, lots of um, initiatives around the world, 
I know lots of different stakeholders, people that are involved in trying to solve these problems. Okay, and so and so the sorts of things that um, have been attempted. So there are government-led um, identity schemes. So you can uh, imagine. So in Europe, for example, lots of governments have uh, issued digital identities in one form or another to to their citizens. Often those are based around a smart card. Um, those tend to be quite difficult to integrate into digital services because you need mm. a card reader and and mm. also they're not um mm. they're, they're not that easy to use i mean it's it's kind of you've got to remember you've got to remember to have the card with you so you know it doesn't work if you're out and about uh and then the the whole kind of user experience of putting a card in is is, is perhaps not not the the sort of the latest you know experience in terms of technology it's not certainly not very mobile focused you have uh, with identity and with payments as well actually you have on the one side um, individuals who want to pay for something or who want to assert their identi identity, so there's kind of consumer end. Uh, and then on the other side, you've got what you might call um, relying parties or service providers, people that want to consume those identities. So they want to determine that you're entitled to access their services. And so you have a it's kind of two-sided market. Uh, in payments, we yeah. talk about um, issuers and acquirers. Uh, in identity, we talk probably about um, uh, identities and relying parties, probably, and that two-sided market usually requires some some organisation or or something in the middle to make the market work, and that's what the scheme would be, right? So uh, the governments run schemes for their own benefit, so so mm. they're they're kind of okay, they're they're operating the system in the middle, but they're issuing cards out to their citizens, and then on the other hand, they've got uh, government departments. Who are those relying parties who want to get access to those cards? Okay, and I was going to ask you when, when you're done with your next example. I was going to ask you, okay, so that's how the governments tend to do it. What's a better way to do yeah. it? But before we get there, go ahead with your. Well, yeah. So I, I think so. The problem with governments doing it is uh, so there are great examples in, in Estonia, for example, fantastic example of a government that has been very successful in rolling out an identity scheme, and they've got it integrated in, into all sorts of public and private sector. Um, applications but it's unique it's standalone no other country has managed to do it in quite the same way uh, in some countries so in the uk for example there's there's a lot of caution about the government controlling identity particularly you now there's caution about the government controlling identity for its own purposes let alone for the private sector because people are worried about surveillance uh, in some countries um, there have been cases where you know maybe the cut that is and this is perhaps moving outside of the west into emerging markets where Perhaps the government is young, or perhaps you think there's a, a risk that the government might um, change in the future and, and can maybe maybe want to compromise the privacy of its of its citizens. So there are kind of moral reasons or ethical reasons why you might want to set up a system that's a, a little bit detached from from government. Mm. So that's there's. But on the other hand, government is often the authoritative source of information about about citizens. I mean, a lot of countries run registers, for example, or they issue passports or driver's licenses. So so there's there are definitely roles that a government can play, but should it become this kind of holistic, all-encompassing identity for everything that we do? I'm not sure about that. So the other the, the next place to go would be um, uh, some kind of regulated entity like a bank. Uh, and in fact, you know, when we think about what, what do banks do? Well, for individuals, they help to manage an individual's money, their finances, right? And I've already talked about, I've already sort of drawn this um, importance of payments and identity as being two key enablers. So you can imagine that a bank 
already playing a role in helping citizens to manage their money might play a role in helping citizens to manage their data, for example, or their identity. And identity and data are two kind of very closely associated terms. So there is a great example here, which is um, in the Nordics. So Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Finland have schemes that are run by the banks. They're often called, so the, 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 the Norwegian and the Swedish schemes are called Bank ID. They're two different schemes in, the, in, in each, one in each country, but they're both called Bank ID. What happened in those countries, banks had their own kind of online security problems. They wanted to enable access to online banking securely. So they created a scheme for themselves where banks were issuing identities to their citizens. And they did it in a collaborative way such that you could take an identity that you've, so you've gone through a, 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 an onboarding process and know your customer process with say one bank in Norway. You then decide you want to open a bank account with another bank in Norway. You don't have to go through that laborious process where you've got to show up with all your documents and they've got to do all the checks and everything again. Mm. You can just take the digital version of your identity from the first bank and assert it digitally to the other bank, right? And, they're, and because they're collaborative, they managed to make that work. Now, interesting point in Norway uh, and those other countries as well is that when you go through that onboarding process for a, um, uh, a bank account, one of the things that they're doing as part of their due diligence for their, for their customers is they're checking you against the national register because in those countries they have national registers which you'll put onto at birth, which is recognized by the government, right? And so then you have a situation where you've got an identity scheme, the bank ID scheme, but actually it's like a proxy for the government's register. And so what's happened in those countries is the government has said, actually, that works really well for us. We'll take that and use that and allow and use that to allow citizens to log on or to access our digital uh, government services. So there you have, um, and those schemes have been around for some years. Um, and um, so what, what you have is a scheme where you've got the bank as a sort of regulated entity. It's not government, um, but it's you know close enough to government that government can use it. And where they're at, where they are at the moment, I think generally is they're looking now looking at okay, we've got something that works well for banks and public services. Can we also make it work in the private sector for non-banking, non-payment related private services? Um, hmm. There are other places sure, right. where there are similar things going on. Um, I mean, I can keep going. I don't know how much time we've got. I could keep. Going. I could literally keep talking about this for days. So be warned. Well, let's, talk, <laughs> yeah, let, let's talk more about some specific applications of your guys' solution. You know, give me an example of one that you implemented that works really well, taught you some good lessons. Yeah. You know, so, showed you what's so, in the future. Yeah. So I tell you about something we've been involved in, which is, um, I think, going to be very important. It's, it's, a, it's a leading project at this instant, which is, um, I don't know whether you're familiar, but the, the banks in Canada have been, have been collaborating together this year on what they're calling an attribute exchange system. Um, it's with a company called SecureKey. Now, uh, there's a little bit of background in that um, SecureKey in Canada did something very similar to the, the bank ID thing that I talked about in, uh, in Norway um, a couple of years ago. And what that does is it allows you to use your online banking logon or your online banking sort of authentication to log on to government, which takes away part of that kind of password problem that I mentioned earlier in the call. So the fact that I have a secure bank grade authentication that I use when I log on to my bank, and I can use the same thing when I log on to government, 
that's that's good for me as a citizen because I'm using something that I'm you know my bank credential, my bank logon, I'm using frequently. So to then use that again for government's easy for me. And what it also means is if there were a problem, then I'm likely to notice it. You know, if my if my if my uh, say my authentication uh, thing got uh, compromised, I might notice. Whereas the bank one that I, the, sorry the government one that I only use once a year, I might not notice. Right. So that's the background. Um, the way that they set up the scheme in Canada was very strong on privacy. They have this concept of um, where the bank doesn't know which government department you're logging on to. The government doesn't know where you bank, who you bank with, and security in the middle don't know who you are. And they do all this cryptographically, so they have sort of cryptographic blinding um, across the parties. They wanted to move into beyond just straightforward logon into sharing of personal data. In other words, I want to share my um, bank um, verified name and address with either the you know, government department or with any other organization that happens to be there. But how do you do that in a way that protects the privacy of the individual? And Canada has a very strong um, uh, set of data protection and privacy uh, legislation. Uh, and so you could imagine that you know, if, if you want to uh, say I'm sharing my address with somebody, or actually, let's pick something. Say I'm sharing my age with somebody, uh, and the bank knows my age because that's part of their uh, know your customer process. Um, the bank could encrypt it to send to the other party, but then the other party they would have to have the key of the other party, so they get to know who the other party is. They could send it into the middle to secure key, and then secure key re-encrypt it and send it to the other party. So neither party knows who, who each other is, but secure key in the middle get to know because they have to unwrap and rewrap the data. And so what they, what SecureKey have done, um, and I'll get onto what our involvement is in a second, what SecureKey have done is they have um, realized that uh, they can achieve the same level of um, privacy control, blinding, preventing of kind of surveillance across the system um, through the use of distributed ledger technology. So it's not that there, there's, there's a lot more to this than I can possibly say in this call, uh, except to say that they're constructing a, a system which um, uses DLT, also uses a, um, a kind of personal data store concept, and it has the banks on board, and they are um, currently in the process of building that together with, with SecureKey to provide um, uh, what, what, what potentially is going to be a really interesting way of, of sharing you know, a very high-value data, data that's been verified that will enable a lot of these kind of high-value services that, that have been perhaps inhibited up to in, up to this point in time. Our involvement, we've been working um, for one of the banks in the consortium, uh, providing them with uh, advice on the market opportunity, so looking at where digital identity is required, where the gaps are, who needs it, this kind of thing, where the pain points are that this that can be addressed, helping them with um, thinking about um, operationally what they should be doing, looking at security, uh, looking at risks across the system, that kind of thing. So in the what about for the unbanked? I mean, I, this is a good solution for you know people that are banked, but what about unbanked or unbankable people? Yeah, so that yeah, that is that is a um, that is a a really important point, and it's you know we there's been um, one of the things that I'm encountering a lot is that um, giving digital identities to people who have no digital footprint or no financial footprint is hard. Um, and certainly when you think of, um, and in, in actual fact, uh, when you look at emerging, well, this isn't just an emerging market problem, but it's perhaps more pronounced in emerging markets, uh, in environments where there's limited access to financial services, 
those financial services in emerging markets have to comply with the same um, anti-money laundering rules as financial services in any other market. And so if you don't have uh, you know, a, a government-issued identity, if you're not, if you weren't registered at birth, I mean, there's, you know, if you don't have even have the documents, let alone the digital version of those documents, bringing people into the system is is very difficult. So um, we've we've done we've been working with uh, the World Bank on that topic, uh, and um, and with one or two other organisations. So there's a, there's a, a, a an organisation called the Amelia Network who are leaders in sort of financial inclusion, bringing people out of poverty, that kind of thing. So, and we've been providing them, um, I guess, guidance, input, direction on what's the latest state of advancements in DLT, in digital identity, how those things can be uh, leveraged to provide new approaches. There's no silver bullet to this, right? But there are lots of interesting projects going on. And it's a really important topic because obviously that's where we can make most difference in people's lives. So we're 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 really interested in, in that whole in that whole space. And ultimately, actually, you know, when you look at um, uh, digital identity and payments, a, a lot of what a lot of what's done, a lot of what has been done up to this point in time, it's it's, it's people looking for where they can get the greatest return on investment. Right? The, the interests of, of consumers often are not really top of the list of priorities. So. Uh, it's, it's been great to be involved with some of those organisations who have a slightly different set of objectives, and maybe maybe they're not driven completely by commercials, you know. So that's uh, okay. Which ultimately is for the good of everyone. So yeah, just a couple of last questions because you know it's great. I'm glad you're passionate about this stuff, and you could talk about it a long time. What's what's coming for um, Consult Hyperion next year out? Any big breakthroughs uh, potentially coming in the ID space? Well. <laughs> So in the UK, I didn't have a chance to talk about the UK. There's a lot going on in the UK in the identity space. Uh, there's been an initiative around the government called Gov.UK Verify, which we're hoping will uh, open out into the private sector and hopefully create um, uh, a marketplace for identity. I think there, there's Canada and the UK in particular are really busy, and I think there's potential for something to happen there. The other thing I would say as well is obviously we haven't touched on anything like uh, Internet of Things, but when we think about the proliferation of of, of devices, different transaction types, uh, all sorts of different interactions, things that we can't possibly imagine at the moment, then lots of our customers are thinking about, well, okay, uh, what's what's the role? How do payments work in that environment? Is there such a, is there such a thing as kind of an invisible payment where where a, where a device is actually paying for something? You know, authorized to pay for something on your behalf, and then how does it manage the, uh, the the control of the data that you've given it access to 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 sort of process on your behalf? So, I think in the IoT IoT space, there's there's a, a lot of land grab going on. There's lots of innovation. A lot of that's being done without much thought to data security, um, which is you know concerning. So obviously, anything that we can do to be involved there and help steer people in a sensible direction. Is is uh, is obviously something that we would try and do. Well, very good. I'm sorry we're out of time. You know, I know there's a lot more you could cover, but you know, let's give people yeah. resources that are listening. How can they get in touch with Consult Hyperion and and talk to you about these issues? Yeah, so we have a website, uh, chyp.com. Um, we have a Twitter handle at chippings at chyppings. Um, there's an email address. I think it's info at chip.com. So Drop us a line, um, or look 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 for me on LinkedIn or something. Um, 
uh, yeah, I would be very pleased to speak to people. Great. Steve, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. No worries. The Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.